Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nesting, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello, and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring Fantasy Flight Games' Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. And I'm Ben. In today's episode, we're going to begin our wrap-up show for the Dream Eater cycle by discussing Campaign A, the Dream Quest. We're also going to be talking about the new player card mechanics and look back on some of the player cards from this cycle. In a future episode, I think we'll probably be talking about the scenarios of Campaign B, and and, uh, we'll be giving you our thoughts on the whole campaign. But first... Some terribly important yeah. and terribly boring FAQ changes. Oh, uh, it's that time of year again? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, not, they're not boring. These are very exciting, obviously, to all the rules nerds. Uh, FAQ version 1.7 came out I don't know, a week ago. When, I don't know when we're releasing this, but recently. And it clarified a couple of like big questions that have been lingering for a while. Did was, they solve the Luke conundrum? Oh, yeah. Did they release the, the tome of Luke? How they, many pages was the clarification of how Luke worked? Like for three? Uh, four? How many chapters? <laughs> it was like uh, volumes. It was like half a page, I think. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, a couple that they they clarified before the Black Throne, which had like three or four different interpretations of how you're supposed to handle like the empty space. Oh, that's right. So I forgot about that. Much like quantum mechanics. <laughs> if you're gonna play that, uh, take a look at that. Uh, they change. A couple text on the words. They have it in two different sections of the FAQ, so you know don't miss both of them. They uh, clarified how bonded works, that you're not allowed to have extra copies of bonded cards if you buy extra packs of a product. So no 300 copies of Essence of the Dream, tragically. Sucks. Something with your deck size changes, like you get versatile or the upgraded on your own. That's not out yet, but it's been previewed. Stuff that changes your deck or your legal requirements, uh, you just get to swap in cards for free. Uh, not super exciting. And then the auto-fail and automatic success and automatic failure. Some cards that let you automatically succeed and fail at stuff. Uh, it kind of clarified the timing of that and whether you draw a token or not. And if you can trigger effects off of that or not. Um, like, I think the main one main one that was, like, the stray cat you can't use to evade Patrice's Watcher anymore. Oh, which no. is a reversal of a previous ruling. And then, yeah, as if uh, was clarified, which is, like, Luke's ability is he can play cards as if he's on another location. I think there's a, still a couple corner cases that are ambiguous there, but like it's a lot clearer. Like the example is used as Luke can play shortcut as if he was at another location, and then he can move to a location cut to that. So you can use shortcut to like move two locations or whatever. Wow, which people weren't sure if you could do that before. And then uh, yeah, it was, there was you know a couple other minor things. Uh, no taboo list update. Uh, Matt Newman tweeted that, that would come between cycles. Uh, What's but the boo and taboo? <laughs> they did uh they did put printable versions of most of the tabooed cards up on their website right so if you print your own cards or if you play virtually those are available i know that uh yeah i know that's something people have really been wanting i'm not really sure why but uh i, I know people are really excited about that i think it, it's always a little upsetting to like put machete into the upgraded guardian card section and then you know if a new player were to be looking through the cards they'll be like oh dane you sorted this into the wrong section and i'll be like actually they would actually be correct obviously because machete yeah. is still a level zero card uh, exactly it's just cost sure, sure. so basically throw your whole collection on the ground dane it's the same thing as <laughs> as your current organizational system just do what our friend Colin does and just keep your collection in a big trash bag. Uh, just throw all the cards <laughs> in there and tote them around. And uh, when you need to make a deck, just kind of shake it out onto the floor and then go hunting for the cards you need. That's really the that's the most efficient, optimal way to store your Arkham cards. I would sooner light my car on fire and drive it into a preschool. <laughs> all right. Uh, should we move ahead and actually talk about the uh, Dream Quest? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Hell yeah. But with that, spoiler shield here. This is the point of no return. See what I did there? Ugh. No, because that, we're not even talking about that scenario today, Dane. That's... Shut up, Ben. <laughs> That's not what matters. Yeah, so spoilers for talking about the Dream Quest. We'll talk about a little bit about the story paths and the story and, you know, surprises that happen in each scenario. So if you haven't got a chance to play it yet, now is your chance to stop. Stop listening to us and obviously come back later, obviously. So, uh, yeah, the Dream Quest. So the general premise of, of Campaign A is... 
some people are having like the same shared dream experience after this author guy uh, wrote about it. Uh, so we volunteer to go to sleep and find out what the deal is with the dreams, and we end up on an adventure in this mystical land, mythical, mystical, wondrous land where we like uh, meet a guy named Randolph. Uh, we find some cats. We find Virgil, and then we kind of travel around trying to find a. This place called Kadath, so that we can escape from the dreamlands and wake up. I think if I had to pick one word to describe the kind of aesthetic and feel of the dreamlands as an environment, it would be zoogadelic, not uh, mystical <laughs> or mythical. But, you know, the, your mileage may vary. It's actually a real word in the real dictionary. It's, it's not. Yeah, so I guess before we go into each individual scenario, like a lot of scenarios had shared encounter sets. Like usually there's encounter sets that are shared across a bunch of random scenarios in the campaign. This cycle seems to have divided up a bit more, where there's a couple that are shared between scenarios, but they're just for the Dream Quest, and there's some that are just for the uh, Web of Dreams campaign. So we just wanted to take a look at a couple of the cool ones there. There's a lot of there's some new hidden cards in this campaign. It's brought and brought back from Carcosa. Yeah, that was kind of like a, a, a semi-major theme of the Dream Quest, right? Yeah, hidden, yeah. Hidden, hidden cards. There was a good amount of hidden cards across all of them. Uh, the main one are the Law of... Oh, why did I volunteer to pronounce this? Yagorth? Close enough. Yagorth. Where it's like, there's a couple different ones, and they prevent you from doing stuff with odd things. Like, you can't commit cards with odd number of symbols, or you can't oh, play right, cards right. that have an odd number of words in the title. And you like get rid of them by getting rid of an even card of the equivalent, like even number of symbols, right, right. even number of words. I always uh, find it fascinating when they make cards and things that reference odd and even numbers. It's like in Magic, there's cards like this where, you know, you can only play cards that have like an even mana cost or something. And someone always has to ask like, wait a minute, is one an even number or an odd number? What about, <laughs> what, what, what about, what about zero? Is zero even? Is zero odd? And you're yeah. like, get out. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just like, what are you, what are you even doing here? Like, come on. <laughs> I think I think people did that in the the Dunwich Legacy. There was that gambling themed encounter set where uh, people were like inquiring oh, if yeah. zero was it considered an even number or not. It and is. It was a weird little thing. Yeah, sure is. Importantly, there are cards that have no cost, and those are not even or odd because they're like null. Also true. Number. Yep. So skill cards, for instance. Yeah. So yeah, those are cool. I liked those a lot uh, just because they. Made you think about like, oh, what the, what's in my deck? Do I actually care if this is in my hand? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't commit even car, even number of icons or odd number of icons. That's fine. I think we, I think we've seen that uh, the encounter cards in the deluxe box of a campaign really do a lot of the work to make the campaign kind of feel different and distinct from the other ones. Yeah. So I think I think that was the case here. I think it was a little bit different because we had the two separate campaigns that had sort of separate encounter cards, partially, but there there were also some overlapping ones. Yeah, so th- those are there were there are some other ones that overlap, but I think the law was the coolest one out of the overlaps. So why don't we uh, let's take a look at the scenarios? So uh, scenario one is called Beyond the Gates of Sleep. Pretty cool name. And it was about us going to sleep and being beyond those gates. The th- premise is like the first half. The kind of one of the like I don't want to say gimmick is the word, but it has a harsh connotation. But I'm going to use it a lot in this. <laughs> we talk about this, <laughs> but I liked most of them. So for lack of better word. Yeah, so, like, the first half is there's no encounter deck, and you're just, like, going down the staircase as you, like, get deeper and deeper into the dreamland. It's like the, you know, the first part of Inception, where you're, like, in the regular world and leaving the, the deeper world behind. Is that Inception? Yeah. Well, there's... Yeah, there's sure. You get more Doom in place of the encounter cards actually not existing, right? Yeah, the Doom ramps up faster, so, like, the longer you take on the stairs, the less time you have for the latter half. So, that, that was kind of neat. Uh, I think there's a mechanic where, like, the... The more cards you have in your hand, the harder it is to go down the stairs. You have to talk to some priests that like give you some spooky warnings. Uh, but oh, I think yeah. like the meat, I think the meat of the scenario, in my opinion, was the the second half. Like once you get down to the woods, where you have to decide if you want to stray from the path or face the repercussion of writing in your campaign log that you've strayed from the path. <laughs> they give you that kind of thing. It felt like something in a video game where it's like, oh, you you have a choice of whether or not to press B to go through the door or whatever. But if you don't, the game just kind of hangs there forever and like you can yeah. actually continue. It, it felt like that well, a little bit because you, you know, yeah, you you don't you basically have to do it right. Like you can't really continue. I mean, you can do it. It's just uh, boring and you get no victory. <laughs> right. You just can't. You can't do it. It's impossible. So. Uh... <laughs> 
so yeah, you stray from the path. You you wander around, and get a bunch of clues. Yeah, yeah. There's like a bunch of woods locations, and it gets harder the more of those you explore. They're really interesting, right? Like they're, they're like they've been referenced in Lovecraft's writing and in Eldritch Horror and stuff. Like they're they're actual places that you've seen before or been to or things. Yeah, like that. it was it was a lot of stuff directly out of the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, I mean the main enemy in this scenario. Uh, with the Zoogs, right? Which are these little Zoogs. weird weird creatures with tentacle faces. They're like mole rats? Yeah. But like eldritchy? Yeah. With spaghetti beards. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> spaghetti moles. But they had the swarm mechanic, which was the one of the big new mechanics in this campaign, where uh, when you draw one, you attach a couple cards from your deck to them as swarm cards, so there's actually like multiple copies of it when you draw it. You can find them as a big mass of enemies or evade them together. Uh, so they made their presence known in this scenario. I think there's also like a giant, a giant ass gug that shows up at some point if you get, if you get a certification. <laughs> oh yeah, B- Bob Gub. Uh, I forget what its name was. But yep, the big gug. Yeah, uh, I don't know. What were you guys thinking about this scenario? So this scenario did a really good job at making you feel like you're kind of in terror as you're walking down these steps, not knowing what's going on. You're like sinking into something that's a dream, but it's not. You're you're running down these steps because you don't want more doom, right? And and each step of the way, you're just trying to get down these steps. And then as soon as you hit the floor where the, the grassy floor in the middle of where the woods begin, you're just kind of presented with that option of like straying from the path or not. And regardless of not if you stray from the path or just sit there, it just presents a really interesting like, we're just going to put this big red button here. And it says do not push. You know, you're obviously going to press it, but like, I'm just going to pose it to you as an option to do that. And you're immediately hit with a really interesting decision that you want to make that 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 is basically solved. But, you know, I like that a lot about it. Yeah, I uh, I thought that this was it reminded me of uh, The Last King or sorry, not Last King. It reminded me a little bit of Curtain Call in the sense that it did a really good job setting the tone for the campaign and was had some really cool kind of atmosphere to it. I don't think it was super interesting mechanically. It was it was fine. It just it d- doesn't really stick out a whole lot. But it was definitely fun to play, and like I said, I think it did a really good job of um, bringing in a lot of the kind of dream quest stuff that we recognize from the Lovecraft novels and kind of setting the stage for the rest of the campaign. Yeah, characterized by like lush scenery and, and interesting like wildlife. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was all really cool. Even uh, getting rid of the encounter deck um, seemed like a kind of a... When we interviewed Matt uh, last year before playing this cycle... He talked about how the kind of feeling of this campaign would be a little bit different. It would be less about horror and more about kind of um, exploration and kind of psychedelic uh, whatever. And I think that, you know, turning off the encounter deck just suddenly makes everything feel less scary and more. It's a very different feeling from everything we've played in the game so far. So I, I thought that was a cool mechanical way to get across that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, in all these scenarios, I get the feeling of like, it's a little more relaxed. I mean, there's definitely tension in that like you have clocks still going but it doesn't it doesn't feel quite as scary it's more like a fun floaty adventure where there's cats and zoogs and uh whispers in your mind at, at least until maybe until the last one <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i think the doom thresholds are generally maybe a little more forgiving a little higher yeah. i don't know i think they're about right but yeah n- none that feel none felt like they were too short but uh let's move on let's move on to talk about the next scenario which which is the one that is a little bit i think the most intense uh time wise so, you know, after after we wander around the woods for a while, we bump into Randolph Carter and some cats, and we head to Ulthar, where I think we find Virgil there. Maybe we find him at the end of the scenario. I don't remember. But but uh, we hang out with the cats in Ulthar, and then we uh, have to go and try to find information about Kadath. Uh, we do that by, like, going to four different regions of the Dreamlands. So the theme of this adventure is we're, like, going to four different, like, little mini maps. Uh, where we go and like try to find uh, information there by like discovering clues and flipping over locations and getting some story text. Uh, where we try to find the sign signs of the gods, and the goal is to try to find all I think ten signs of the gods that are spread out between the four different zones. So this is like a this is very much the uh, you know do as much as you possibly can scenario that they, we kind of get like one of in every campaign. It's like uh, wages of sin, boundary beyond, the last king, uh, etc. Yeah. Veiled became a uh, mechanic here, right? I think that had existed before, right? I think that was in... It's, it's kind of just like a new name for something that we've seen before, I think, right? Yeah. yeah in Carcosa, there was the Dim the Dim Carcosa thing where 
they have decks on the other side. Or once you get all the clues off, you can flip something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I think it was in one of the scenario before this, but yeah, you're right. It's it is a yeah. it was added as a keyword uh, for this at least mentioned there. Yeah, I, I I like this one. I think it was more relaxing in terms of like I didn't feel like we were about to die every turn if we didn't fuck up or if we uh, didn't do everything perfectly compared to like Boundary Beyond or or like even even Wages of Sin. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But it definitely was still like a tight clock. I liked it too, and I'm I'm surprised to hear you say that. I think to me. Maybe in some ways it sort of feels like the clock is a little bit less tight, but the thing that was a little bit frustrating about it to me is, you know, you go to these four different locations, like four corners of the map, and in each one you, you know, set out locations and you kind of create a little mini board, and then you have to try to get as many signs of the gods as you can before you move on to the next one. But what's frustrating is you can only move between areas at the end of the round. And I understand why they do that. It's because they don't want to have you set out all these locations at once so that you have to kind of do it during mythos phase or whatever. But what that kind of meant was that a lot of times it felt like it was kind of very coarse. Like you, you know, we kind of almost finished this location this round, but we didn't quite get everyone back to the starting point to get back on the boat. So we have to burn an entire extra turn here. And that, you know, we just basically like wasted a turn. It kind of felt like that. Like, I'm I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that what made this feel kind of stressful and, and a lot of time pressure to me was the fact that you had to be very careful to not just like waste a turn and to try to use each of your each of your rounds as as carefully as possible so that you didn't spend like one extra round on a location when you really needed to move on. Yeah, that's certainly fair. I kind of liked those like if you mess up there then you're like, "Oh, you have a round where you can kind of like recuperate uh for the most part or maybe try to get a little bit extra victory from some location or fight a monster or something like" It was a little bit more relaxing while in like Boundary Beyond every time you have a setback in that, it's like, oh, I'm actively aware I've just lost like an entire turn and, <laughs> and all. There's like nothing redeeming, yeah. Definitely. That ancient location got, got sent back or whatever. I think both times I there's a, yeah, I think both times that I played this, we screwed up a lot relatively early and we ended up in a position where, you know, okay, we still have to check out two more locations, but we only have one round on each of them. So it's like quickly yeah. land the boat. You have one round to try to grab a sign or two if you can get it, and then we have to get back in the boat. And you know, again, it's it's fine, but it's just kind of frustrating. I wish that there was some way to switch locations mid round. That would just make it feel like you have a little bit more control. Yeah, I agree there. Like, I guess we in all of my playthroughs, it was similar. Uh, I mean, most of them were with you, but it was <laughs> like, oh, we explored the fully explored the first two locations, and then like, oh, we have like four rounds left to do two whole full <laughs> locations. <laughs> So it was like kind of a, a guessing game on like trying to figure out which ones have the sign of the gods, get as many as we can to get out. There's definitely one location that's far longer, right? Yeah, there's one that's bigger. I forget which one. Yeah, it would be really helpful to remember which one that is to help <laughs> us plan, but I definitely don't remember. So I don't know. I, I mean, I like the theme of each individual location. Uh, it had like different enemies in each one, uh, like a slightly different encounter set. So that was definitely cool. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like a, I think it was, they're going for a feel where it's like a whole campaign in one scenario where you go to these different locations. And I think that was cool. It did kind of feel that way a little bit. Yeah, they did a really good job at making each of the the places that you explore feel very different. Like one of them was a mountain and at the mountain you can like kind of climb it to find some clues and, and get one of the signs of the gods. Yeah. And then when you get there, you usually flip over like a city location. That's more of like a port where there's normal people doing like normal people things. And then you kind of go out. Yeah, like <laughs> you, you go on an excursion to go to the other locations to, to you know, resolve the veiled things and, and, you know, explore. All the while, there's really interesting, like, things happening with, like, there's, like, the beings of Ib. In Ib, you get to see, like, Celephase, you get to see the Forbidden Lands and all these places that you've, you've read about. Oh, yeah. Do you guys know what happened to Ib? Do you guys hear about Ib? What happened, what happened there? No? I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, like, in each of these locations, they did a really good job at, like, showing you all the different parts of the Dreamlands, really, like, in a condensed sort of way. Yeah, and, and this was another one that was pulled, I think, pretty closely from the Dreamcast of Unknown Kadath, and it was reflecting a part of that story, and has a lot of the locations that the guy goes to in that story, so that was cool. I did like that we had to hop between the different zones, though it was a little bit, like, clunky, like, when playing it. Like, I wouldn't want that to be a... I think a recurring mechanic, just having to like clear the map and reset it up every time it slows down the game a little bit, but it was still very cool and thematic in that way. 
I, I also have to ask, is it just me or is this one of the longest scenarios that we've ever played? I think each time that I played it, I think it just took like three plus hours with a group of three people. Yeah, it's very I long. Think because of exactly what Ben was saying. Yeah. Because of the setup. And also I think because on the last couple turns, you're like maybe trying to optimize like, oh, can we could flip over two or three of these locations and then leave or yeah it's like because the time pressure is so tight the last like five turns you're like really trying to get the most out of every possible action um it it reminds me in terms of length i think only maybe like the egypt scenarios the um guardians of the abyss i think only those scenarios i think i remember being about as long so which is fine just know know that going in like don't try to get this one done quickly before you have to you know do something else (laughs) yeah that's for sure yeah uh, there's one or two nasty encounter cards in this too. Like there's that wondrous lands card that uh, like attaches to your location, and then once you investigate, you like place a doom on the current agenda to discard it. Yeah, what we would find is if you're trying to get everything, all the victory and all of the signs, then you really it's basically an ancient evils because you're going yeah. to need to get clues unless you have really good ways to, to get clues without investigating. Um, so if you can really do that very reliably, then maybe you can ignore it. But for the most part. We, we we had to treat it as an Ancient Evils. Yeah, I think it's kind of a cool way to make an Ancient Evils, though. I mean, yeah, like Intel Report, Drawn to the Flame, makes good uses for cards like that. Right, that is true. Yeah, but you need to you, you need to be able to get, like, all the clues, not just a couple, yeah. right? Yeah, because so. in order to flip it, so. Yeah. And there was also that song of the Magi Bird that was kind of nasty. It wasn't as bad, but uh, it was like you can't move out of the location without making Doom happen. But you could at least get rid of that by doing a test. Yeah, you just needed to have a good uh, good willpower to get rid of that one. Yeah, a lot of the encounter cards were based around slowing you down and like not letting you explore all the things. Yeah, right. There's a lot of birds that are enemies or like effects in these games. It was Lovecraft like anti bird? He's pro cat, but was he, was he anti pro pro cat anti non white people? Uh, yeah, well, I don't know yeah. if he had feelings one way or the other on birds. We'll he was anti a lot of things, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was, <laughs> was anti a lot of stuff. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know. Yeah. I just don't know if Lovecraft or maybe it was like Matt. Maybe Matt doesn't like birds. Maybe he was traumatized as a child or something uh, by like a swarm of birds. <laughs> we can only speculate. I, I have a friend who's extremely creeped out specifically by dead birds. Oh, like live well, live birds fine but there's like a dead pigeon or something he's like very freaked out by I don't know. <laughs> my my brother had like a fear of birds when he was younger i don't know maybe matt like had a traumatizing experience watching like that the birds movie where the oh birds yeah that's, oh, a, oh. that's a bizarre movie like maybe he was forced to see that when he was too From young hitchcock yeah yeah oh yeah yeah i don't know that's pretty weird but uh let's let's talk like at the third scenario the dark side of the moon yeah. So uh i think like after we adventure in the kadath we get on a boat and we're like well we got to go to the moon I forgot to check the exact yeah. details, but sometimes you just gotta. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think if you like fail in the search of Kadath, you get kidnapped or something and taken to the moon. But if you succeed, you just kind of go there anyway <laughs> to uh, to go to the moon, look for clues for Kadath. So the the theme of the main thing of this was the alarm level, which was you put Doom on your character to keep track of it because that was the only remaining token that couldn't already go on your character card to keep track of a number. So you put Doom on your card to keep track of your alarm level. And as your alarm level gets higher uh, through various effects in the game, stuff gets scarier. Like, I think the skull gets worse. Uh, certain enemies start paying attention to you. But the idea is you're, like, trying to sneak around the moon, uh, look for information, not to get trying to remain undiscovered as long as you can. And you kind of, like, sneak around the dark side of the moon, and then you, like, find a tunnel, sneak past a moon lizard or fight it, and then uh, get to the other side of the moon through this, the tunnel that goes through the center of the moon, obviously, uh, and try to get on a boat without uh, without the corsairs or the i think they were night gaunts or something i forget some type of flying flying monster yeah it's just kind of a fun standard a standard arkham adventure on the moon it was very very much the opposite of of the bright and sunny and interesting world of of kadath or or where we were um in the search for kadath this is like a very forbidding very spooky dark you know place whereas the search for kadath is more of like a wild adventure hopping on the boat with some old man this is like he kind of lets you off and he's like all right bye he's like dude this shit's fucked like (laughs) it it reminded me a little bit of destiny where you go to the moon it's like hey see that crater it's full of space zombies Ooh, (laughs) yeah so i don't know this was like a i think this might have been my least favorite of these four it kind of felt kind of standard i was playing like a fighty type in both like i played tony and then zoe and my playthroughs i've done and 
I think it was like hard to murder those cats of Saturn. It was like way better to like evade them. It wasn't good at either of those. Yeah, they they were like a swarm where they they lose one of the swarms every time they move, and they're a hunter. Yeah. So if you can evade them and just move away, they kind of go away on their own. I think mostly. they went away if you evaded them too. But yeah, but if you had to actually fight them, it was really tough. Yeah, and I think like the ways to lower your alarm level, like it wasn't like a combat way to do it. It was all like agility or book or willpower. So it was it wasn't as fun as like a fighty type character, but I think if I had played it as somebody else, it would have been like much uh, a little bit more interesting. I think it just felt a little taxing and a little like maybe I don't want to call it one dimensional, but it just it just felt like uh, there wasn't a lot based on it that you could do much about. Like it was it was very like binary in terms of like you were at a if you were at a certain alarm level you just couldn't do something and then you'd have to like take a test to reduce your alarm level and then there'd be an encounter card that would come up and be like oh here comes your alarm level again and it's <laughs> okay well yeah. here we go having you do the same thing again yeah I liked the premise of the alarm where like there was certain monsters that would ignore you until your alarm was at a certain level that was cool yeah that was kind of cool but I also felt like it was pretty hard to keep your alarm below the threshold for very long yeah it was a cool idea like trying to do kind of a stealth theme which was neat but it felt like uh i kind of expected it would be like oh you you lose you gain alarm points if you like fight or do something loud instead it was mostly just when the act goes up or the agenda goes up you get alarm points so it it was kind of beyond your control and, and what was under your control was like doing tests to lower it which just felt less cool than sort of like trying to be stealthy and trying to avoid things that would increase your alarm, which is what I kind of was hoping it would be like. I mean, the theme of those tests was like, oh, you hide in the crater or, oh, yeah, you, you read about I, I, how to cover yourself in dust so they don't smell you or something. But <laughs> it's, it's definitely true. But I just I thought it would be more fun if it was sort of like a, a, instead of thing that you were trying to like avoid having your alarm go up. But I mean, there was a little bit of that, too, we should say. Yeah, I, I thought this one was cool. I, I would agree that it was probably my least favorite of the four, but it was still still pretty good. Yeah, definitely still enjoyable. The Cats of Saturn art is very cool. I forgot to note down like oh, the yeah. cool art from all these scenarios, but there's definitely a lot of like very cool. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Across across the board, as per usual. And and definitely similar to what Ben said earlier, this was a very like fighty kind of scenario. There were a lot of pretty nasty enemies. Uh, I think we made extremely heavy use of dynamite in at least one of the <laughs> yeah, we, at least yeah, one of the times I played this. Yeah, which didn't which didn't uh, make our alarm level up at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah see ex- exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it, it should have said like any card that has an exclamation point in it raises your alarm level or something like that. <laughs> Anytime you deal more than one damage at a time, like, like some somebody in your party yells, "Like I've got a plan," and everyone's like, "Shh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shut up, shut up." Yeah, like it should be if you play any card that has quotes, it's like you said something and your alarm goes up. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, you said your one lighter, but the enemy heard you. Whatever. <laughs> no, they're yeah. like these creepy yeah. purple spaghetti cats, though, right? Like these cats of Saturn. And there's Aren't one they point like made out of shapes or something. Yeah, they're like these. They have these like runic armor on, and they they're like these little like. They've got like a billion little legs and like there's there's a point where you have to draw them, I think. Like when the actor agenda advances at some point, it's like they've spotted you run and to the ship. And then you have to spawn like two copies of them. And by that point, for the first time that I played it in any way, my alarm level was like five and my partner's was like four. And we so we had like like nine cats, like nine <laughs> swarms of cats on us that Tony just had to like individually punch off of yeah. Patrice and then like wrestle off of himself whoa, whoa, in order whoa. to get into the boat. He had to punch them off Patrice. Patrice couldn't just evade them off herself with her <laughs> like, quartered or whatever? Nope. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. T- Tony had to do all of the hard work. We there. had a similar situation, but our Patrice just like solely evaded all the cats. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, that's it, like a solid scenario, but just not my favorite. But uh, the last scenario in this campaign, uh, where the gods dwell, once we escape from the moon, we end up in uh, Lang, Plateau of Lang, uh, making way to Kadath, yeah, where the gods dwell. And we're hearing, like, spooky whispers the whole time in our minds, you know, scary guy, kind of wandering around Lang for a little while. This scenario has, like, two, like, definitely has, like, a definitive two parts, because there's an interlude in the middle of it. And, uh, like, the first half, you're just exploring around, and eventually you find, you find like, a monastery that's got a really spooky guy in it, and you kind of fight him. Uh, or, like, strategically evade him and then push him in a hole, which is very funny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and then uh, when you finally find, like, the castle or the mon- I forget what it is, the castle or something, you're, like, you show up and you're like, oh, it's empty, there's nothing here. And then Randolph, who you've been hanging out this whole time, is like, 
Yes, it was foolish of you to come here. And he stabs Virgil, the old man, and uh, turns into uh, whispers in our head. And we enter the mechanic. The main mechanic of the scenario is the boss. Randolph, the whole time, was Narlothotep, which I definitely pronounced correctly. <laughs> and it adds like a bunch of hidden cards to the encounter deck. And takes you to a new area where you have to like explore these towers and try to figure out a way to defeat Narlothotep. But he's actually like hidden cards that go in your hand. And he, you're not allowed to mention him in any way or discuss that he exists or you go insane. Immediately. Immediately. And the only way to defeat him out of your hand is to have a different hidden card and to go to a, one of the other loca- a specific location that that hidden, the hidden card says. It says to go to like the north or the west or east or south tower. And you go there and you do like a fight or investigate uh, whatever that card, whatever the location says to do uh, in order to start to defeat him. But because you can't talk about hidden cards and you super can't talk about him, you have to like try to figure out how to pass those cards amongst one another. So that, like the person that's like, oh, good at the will test uh, has a copy of him and the hidden, the whispers card that says to go to the east location that has the will test or whatever. Yeah, because the because the central location has an action on it where you can donate a hidden card to someone else who's at that location, right? And you can also spend clues to do kind of the jazz mulligan thing to like look at the top three cards of the encounter deck, take any of their hidden cards into your hand, and discard the rest. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I I like this one a lot. What it really reminded me of most of all was um like raid bosses in in World of Warcraft or something like that, where a lot of times. You know, there'd be a boss that would spawn, you know, ads in different colors or something, and you'd have to, like, oh, we have to get, like, a red ad and a blue ad to this corner of the room, and then they, like, cancel each other out or something. Like, it's your sort of coordination of, like, managing multiple things at once and going to specific locations to do stuff. I thought that was really neat. I do think, uh, you know, the kind of restriction that you can't talk about hidden cards, a lot depends on kind of how rigidly you enforce that. You know, we obviously, you know, we're not going to break the rules and just, you're not going to directly say, I have the thing that lets you use the West Tower. But the problem is, like, where do you draw the line, right? Because if, like, if I just said, like, all right, guys, this turn, I'm going to go to the Western place. Like, I think you could hint pretty well that what you're doing is, like, I'm going to move over there and I'm kind of, like, waiting to see if anybody gives me a copy of, of the spooky guy or whatever, right? Like, you can kind of like, without actually openly saying anything, you can kind of like convey a lot of information, but it feels like if you go too far with that, you're kind of going against the spirit of the rules. So I'm kind of, I sort of think that's sort of the point is like, you're supposed to like say, Oh, I'm going to go do this. And it's up to other people to try to figure out, Oh, why, why the hell would they do that? And then yeah, say, Oh, yeah, maybe yeah. they got this in their hand or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I just it, like it. I think you have to be very careful to not cross the line of just like, conveying too much so yeah. I, I don't know. i'm interested to see how other play groups sort of handle that kind of question i i like that i like that like it's like there's public information hidden information people say they're going to do something and you have to try to bridge the gap without them actually telling you you know it makes it i think that makes it a little more interactive i mostly liked it too i would say that uh in solo mode which i did, didn't play but it <laughs> seems like this would kind of fall flat in solo right yeah what's even the point of doing it in solo i kind of feel like yeah like the because the mechanic is just you draw cards until you get the one you want and go there and do it so i don't know that seems, seems like a bit of an oversight maybe people that play solo a lot more can can give some feedback on like if they like this or not it's probably it's probably really tough too because you you might need to go through the entire encounter deck to get enough of the cards yeah and like you you know you you, there's only there's fewer clues per location right so you have to move locations more yeah Yeah, that's true this actually could be really really hard in solo yeah i mean solo has and they have to deal with two narlothoteps like the number of narlotheps in the deck is uh players plus one right so i i I worry about the scaling there a lot but in three player i thought it was about right (laughs) yeah we yeah three three players it felt pretty good they did a really good job of, like, making you feel like you haven't with any of the other bosses. I think that sometimes at the at the end of the other cycles, we'd be thinking, okay, but how can we make it so that we just, just don't, don't go straight to space and fight a huge space god or whatever? <laughs> like, this... This was, like, definitely not that whatsoever. This was, like, you're actually... You're actually in your own mind. And while I would have liked to explore, like, Leng and that whole environment a little more, because that's kind of, like, one of... One of my favorite places anyways, like the spooky cold wastes with with this huge random onyx castle that's like completely empty. That's so cool in concept. And I think that when you actually go into the throne room and you're you're running between the towers to to ward him off from your mind, 
there's a really cool balance of like, you need some of his cards to defeat him. Translating to, you need to be a certain level of mad in order to, to, you know, defeat him, but not too mad. You can't, you can't say his name. You can't acknowledge that he's there or else he'll consume you or, you know, what have you. Yeah, you go insane. Yeah, but the black cat, if you do have his aid, you know, the black cat is there with you. And, and when you draw one of the tokens, you know, the black cat reminds you that it's all just a dream. And you're like, oh, okay. It's all in my head. Yeah, we didn't talk much about the Black Cat uh, so far, just because it's a lot. It's integral to the uh, interweaving of the two campaigns. Like it, between each scenario, you like make a decision involving a Black Cat, and you can like make one of the halves of the one. You can make either A or B easier or harder. Like you, you put like a token that buffs you versus a token that uh, is scarier into the bag. A major thing though with the Black Cat choices for this scenario, uh, which I don't think Dan got to do. Because uh, we didn't get that in our playthrough. Uh, so I don't know if Dane wants to cover his ears and, and make a loud noise for the next five minutes or not. But uh, please don't do that. <laughs> um, I wasn't going to. If you kind of do the neutral black cat path, which is um, you don't send him to aid either side. Uh, instead, you kind of play it even so he doesn't add tokens to either campaign. And he gets a hunch and he goes off and does his own little investigation. He shows up and he reveals... Uh, Tep's true true form. Face? I don't know. It's a true form. Yeah, and you get a fifth act uh, where all of the Narlotheps that you defeated come back and merge together into a big, a big giant boss. Uh, so super cool. So it is. It is very cool and thematic. It gets the whole Voltron vibe going in there, where he merges together and gets to a big guy. And it's a, it's actually a very scary boss. And you you don't get extra time to do it also no. right so it's like it's it's very challenging to actually finish it it evokes a couple different things from a couple different uh cycles like so from the forgotten age and and here's super mega spoilers for the forgotten age and also the uh, return to pathic to her uh, i'm about to say in the forgotten age there's like a secret ninth scenario where if you do everything just right you make all the right choices you unlock like the final stage of yig right which is back in the past and then in return to carcosa there's something that this evokes where when you defeat uh haster he retreats into like your own mind or depending on your your choices he'll he'll go to his throne room or something like that and then you have to follow him into like another realm to beat him so this is like he's in your head this whole time and if you do it the correct way that's the only way that you can truly defeat him which is really cool it's like an extra bonus this is the you know this is not my final form uh (laughs) right stage Right. right Uh, of the boss fight i i enjoyed it a lot because we it was very tight crunch wise i think when dan played it with dan and colin and i think we had like three or four turns to fight on standard with the new investigators yeah yeah that was our blind playthrough so we didn't know what was going on very tight i think we like just barely killed him before on like the last possible turn or something yeah we we did on the last turn with a little bit of luck on the last turn otherwise we would have lost yeah i don't know i just thought it was very cool it's also like Unless you're playing it a four player, it'll be that would be a different boss each time. It's kind of like a fun like oh we didn't make our we didn't make either campaign easier on ourselves, so yeah. we get to do the bonus fight um, and kind of get like the maybe the quote unquote real ending. I don't know. Like you get to defeat him instead of him just like wisping away, which is I guess a little bit less Lovecraftian that you actually get to <laughs> defeat him. But uh, I thought it was definitely one of the most enjoyable boss fights that we've had in arkham so far yeah yeah i I would put this up there with tim carcosa in in the list of best uh ending scenarios probably for sure i was always like given the hidden card mechanic it it evoked so much of like the paranoia of carcosa that i i didn't even really want to say his name you know like you could clearly say his name you just can't talk about the physical card that's sitting in your hand right um, or else you are driven insane and that's such like a fine line so i still didn't even want to say his name so we we came up with a nickname for him that made us feel better. Nyarlathotep, aka Gnarly P. Gnarly P. Which diffused a lot of the tension. Not and... Gnarly Pete. You can just go Gnarly Pete. Gnarly P. <laughs> okay. That's his rap name. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I I agree there. I was very unsure like how we could talk about. I I think you're like not if you have a card in your hand you're like. Not supposed to talk about the presence of the card existing at all. Right, exactly, uh, yeah. So, like, you can't, like, strategize. So when you take damage and horror randomly, they're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Like if, if someone if someone looks over at you and you're just like putting a bunch of damage or whatever on your, you, you and they're like, oh, what's going on? You just be like, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm like what? <laughs> I don't I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't know when the scratch got here, but you know. But yeah, the, I think um, yeah, hidden cards in general were the very very present in this scenario. That was like the main theme of the second half of the encounter deck. There was also one card called Abandoned by the Gods, which made you do a will test, and then for each point you failed by, you had to pick a number between 0 and 4, and then everybody in the group has to trash all their cards that have that cost. So it's kind of complicated, but the effect is, if you really screw up the will test, everyone in the group has to possibly discard a lot of cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that just felt like an encounter card that you kind of had to be very aware of and maybe have kind of a plan to handle, and you maybe needed to be aware of it so you could, if you had a really important card in your hand... There was a possibility you were going to lose it if somebody screwed it up or picked the wrong number, so you kind of had to be careful about that. Yeah, yeah. Overall, definitely very strong finale to Campaign A. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the mechanics made made Gnarly P really hard to deal with, too, in the way that they would, like, reveal him. Like, myriad forms would reveal him from your hand, and then he'd, like, smack you and go back in the deck. So you'd have to find him again, and there's not a lot of doom. So it prolonged everything, and it was like, oh, God. It's like... 17 turns and i think there was some stuff that added to do maybe maybe not yes uh, yes yeah there was a cultist token that did add a doom. yeah yeah there were also just cultists in general that that produced doom and there was that one encounter card that made you take a fast action if you fail it you ancient evils essentially yeah it was tough very good though yeah so pretty cool looking forward to seeing how the other half of the campaign pans out and uh getting to talk more about like how they interweave a bit we got a little bit more time, so why don't we briefly reflect on the uh, card mechanics that were introduced in this uh, cycle? Yeah, player card mechanics. So the first one was the bonded cards. I guess this was technically introduced at the end of last cycle, but it was heavily featured here. Very heavily. We had cards that you put in your deck, and then when you play them, you add other cards to your deck or to the field uh, and get some like benefit from them. But like the actual main card doesn't really do too much. Yeah, so like Dream Diary was an example of one. Yeah, I think this was like a very cool and diverse mechanic, especially because you could like add weaknesses to your deck from it or put something in the encounter deck or uh, add stuff to your hand or whatever. There's a lot of potential for like different uses. I think it was maybe hit or miss uh, as we've like done the card reviews and whether it worked or not, but definitely very cool, I think. Yeah, I I agree. I like the diversity of it a lot, where you could really see as the cycle went went through and we saw all the different new player cards, you could really see them experimenting with a lot of different variations on this theme. And there was clearly there's clearly a ton of design space to explore. So that's cool. I did kind of find, though, that it was... I liked some of the individual cards, but it felt just a little bit clunky in the sense that you kind of have to carry around extra cards that are like not really part of your deck. And it, it, it's just kind of complicated. Like there were there were some re- weird rules questions that popped up around it. So again, none of this is terrible. Like I, I think it was a cool mechanic, but I recently had to make decks to play with uh, some work friends who hadn't played before. So kind of teaching decks. And I was trying to not include any cards that were super complicated just to keep things simple. And I let I left out a lot of like good bonded cards just because I thought it's just a little bit too complicated for someone that's like learning the game. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. I think that bonded, the way that it interacts with like putting the cards in your deck is kind of a little clunky just because you have to be carrying those around as if they're like permanents or something. So they're they're like in a in a set whole new zone like the bonded cards. So, yeah, that was that was a little weird, but the bonding cards themselves were really fun to play with. Um Pen of the Queen, things like that were really cool and interesting to to get to use. Yeah. So, yeah, the next mechanic they introduced was the Myriad which was you could put three copies of a card into your deck um, and also upgrade into those cards for the cost of one. Uh, a lot of these were like if you got all three of them uh, like in your hand or in play at once, you'd get to do some cool thing. Or they were like, alternately, they were like trigger off each other. So it'd be a benefit to like getting multiple of them out on the board. But the downside is, is to like get the maximum benefit from them. It was usually you take out three deck slots to get three copies of this card. I did think it was kind of funny that they chose the term myriad for this, because myriad usually means like a huge number. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, it means three. It means one more than the, than the three normal. Three is a crazy large <laughs> one number. One more than normal. Yeah, one more than the normal limit of how many cards you can have. So, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I they probably didn't want to use like uh, threesome or something. Uh, or tri- tri- <laughs> I don't know. Uh, triad. Yeah, triad. But uh, I don't know. I, again, this was kind of hit or miss for me. I think, I think it was opened up a little bit less design space than Bonded did. But uh, there's definitely some cool ones, uh, especially if you're playing someone that like digs through a deck a lot and you want to like try to get all three pieces of something. 
the what is it the clasp of onyx or pieces of onyx i forget which which is which but yeah that's like a cool i dig through my deck and i get all three pieces and now i get to do something awesome type of thing yeah same thing with three bases and stuff so like an exodia sort of a kind of thing we saw this a lot in combination with the other new mechanics like bonded where there would be um you know like pennant of the queen was both we also saw this in combination with the other mechanic we're about to talk about but we also just saw it on its own in cards like open gate and um yeah I, I think it was cool it was kind of it didn't really introduce a whole lot of new rules or complexity it was really just a deck building thing but it was uh it, it was neat i like some of these cards yeah both of those mechanics uh did make it so i think we got maybe less total player cards this cycle because yes. they were taking up more slots I, I don't know if that's actually true i didn't go and count uh it could be that they balance each other out but uh <laughs> it definitely made it so like sometimes there was a pack with like bonded cards and i was like oh this is actually only like five new player cards just <laughs> spread out the text is split up between two separate cards that's okay that um, makes that makes editing the card reviews a little faster so i'm i'm, I'm all <laughs> hooray for it. i guess that's fair so like i like the i like them exploring the design space but they are do are bumping into constraints with like you know how they actually sell the cards the last little mechanic they added was the research mechanic, which was like a card effect that when you search your deck, it would have some benefit. And we saw that in like Mandy's signature card, and then I think there was at least two or three other cards that had this uh, effect. There's a Seeker exclusive, right? Uh, yes. Because they're the yeah. ones who are like digging for interesting things happening, and they're the ones who are doing all the research. So yeah, they benefit the most from it. Yeah, I mean, I think Dan out of us has played the most like mandy or so maybe his opinion on these uh yeah i i like the mechanic a lot obviously it's very tailor-made for mandy i think above all more than any other investigator the only research card that i would usually play in mandy decks was astounding revelation and even that i kind of had to be talked into it at first i wasn't really interested but i kind of came to see yeah it, it is actually a pretty good and important card I think it was fun. I, I think it's mostly you just don't want to go overboard with it. These cards are really bad if you draw them. So it feels like you basically just play a sounding revelation in Mandy, and that's about it. Other than that, you probably shouldn't play many research cards. I, the only exception might be Arcane Initiate if you're playing a deck that has that and has access to research cards, just because you're searching every turn. Maybe it kind of uh, balances out, or Mr. Rook, but yeah i don't know old book of lore things like that yeah they're definitely not like a put in every type of deck type of card but i think they have a niche with anyone that's doing search stuff and you're i didn't mention it you're right if you draw the card it's like usually like oh it commits for one symbol like you really want to be someone's yeah. aggressively searching to trigger the the good effects from them yeah it, it did uh, i didn't get a chance to do this because it's so much xp but it does combo really well with a uh, glimpse the unthinkable if you have one of those because you can potentially shuffle some back in and it also works well with uh another really great uh, recent seeker card the um occult lexicon because when you play blood right you can discard cards from your hand so if you do end up drawing these research cards they're usually the first card in your hand that you want to discard so they're good with any like discard outlet as well yeah i, I like this mechanic i thought it was cool i wish we'd gotten maybe a second set of cards that i thought were good enough to be playable in mandy besides the sound of revelation but I, I still like the mechanic and it's not just mandy definitely like anyone that keeps mr rook or any search stuff but yeah, but potentially he's obviously just the best at it. So yeah, she is the researcher. Yeah. So before we close the episode out, just one last thing while we're talking about player cards, do you guys want to each maybe pick a player card from this cycle that has gone up in your estimation since we originally saw it? Maybe something that you got a chance to play with and said, oh, this is actually, uh, you know, significantly better than I thought. Yeah, sure. I'll start. Uh, Open gate. I think we weren't like super excited about, but it's pretty good uh it saves you a lot <laughs> especially in this campaign where there's like a lot of really big maps that you need to like kind of backtrack a lot on yeah um both the a and b and especially in luke who can just kind of put it on both sides of the board whenever he wants yeah or people who can draw through their decks pretty quickly like patrice yeah, yeah. it saves you a lot of, it saves you a lot of actions if you like get good placement on it yeah we we even we went back and played carcosa with it and in many of those scenarios it was it was a big difference yeah i think the times where it, it like either breaks open scenarios or is really, really useful in them, is much higher than we thought. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah. So another one that we, we uh, were thinking about was, was Solemn Vow. At first, we just thought it was a, like a really solid card that had two will symbols, so you can commit it. Turns out that it's like actually an incredible Carolyn card, like almost to the point where it's, it's like compulsory yeah. for her to take because it's really good for Peter. It's so good. It's really good. It, it turns into Lone Wolf. <laughs> 
you you just really want that actionless horror healing and it also has the effect of giving you the money for healing the horror that they get, that they transferred to you instead of them getting the money which you know both are good but it's just it's great to be able to do that yeah exactly passive heal is so strong for her too like it's just great yeah and we saw it work really well with agnes's ability and also with um agency backups as well yes because you can take it off of the cards that you have not just your own investigator card which is very, very powerful. I used it with Kiwis, so yeah. hooray. Uh, yeah, and I would say, I guess, leadership level two is actually pretty solid. I think it was a card that we looked at it and we thought of it like original leadership, where the main benefit is just getting extra symbols when you commit it to someone, and that's not really that important. The really cool part about it is just that even if you commit it to yourself, you just get two resources without spending an action, which is pretty great. Like that's uh, A lot of times for Guardians, you really need money, but you don't have time to actually get it. So just clickless two money is is really nice. The rest of it is kind of just gravy where you can also give someone else in your group money. That's really good too. But if, if there was just a card that said single question mark icon, if you succeed, gain two resources, that would be like a, you know, a, a, a fairly playable guardian card on its own, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Fast gain resources is always great. Yeah. And like, it also helps with a couple of the other classes that you're going to be playing with rogues. Like maybe if you're playing with a rogue, like a Finn who's trying to pick up your clues. It can bolster his will up to a reasonable amount, or if you're playing with a bunch of mystics, it also helps like get them to super succeed at something if they need to for whatever reason. So yeah. I think it, I think it's just a really solid card too, yeah. Yeah. So with all that said, who else has some fond memories of their sleepy investigators in the Dream Quest? Did you too play Zoe and have God cast his divine light on Gnarly P to drag him out into the real world? Uh, I've got to Check us that. out on Facebook <laughs> and Reddit. Follow us on Instagram or comment wherever you listen to podcasts and email us at comments at mur.fm. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. I got through that whole thing without even mentioning Zoe. Dang it. <laughs> She's incredible at <laughs> this campaign. Yeah, uh, we finally we finally found the scenario where Zoe's weakness is excellent and we're on the hunt is actually a great card. And uh, you didn't mention it at all. Uh, all right, well. Did, wait, didn't you? You had on the hunt in your deck and you took it out before that scenario, right? Yeah, I did. Because it was like. Uh, That's incredible. <laughs> oh, well. And now we know.